This season, we've asked our socios to choose their favourite interview from our archive. The big interview started in April 2015, and we've now done over 200 episodes to 8 million listens. Here's one of our socios explaining why the archive interview you're about to hear is their personal favourite. Hi, this is Neil from Backpage and one of the producers of The Big Interview. You're listening to the latest of our Listener's Choice episodes from Season 1 of the podcast, and today that listener is me. My choice is Chris Waddle. Our socios at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter know this is my favourite. I go on about it all the time over there. This was recorded pretty early on in the life of the podcast, just, I think, before we launched the Kickstarter that allowed us to produce Season 2. It was a really exciting time for the three of us that make the show. We kind of started the podcast as a jape, and by the time we saw Chris, it had gotten out of hand in a good way. When we saw Chris up in Sheffield, I remember talking with Martin and Graham about what we wanted to get him talking about, and as well as all the obvious stuff, England and Newcastle and Spurs and Marseille, we came up with the idea of asking Chris how he did what he did when he was a player. It's a theme we've gone back to occasionally on the show, but this was the first time that we did it, and for me, it's still the best. Whenever I talk to people who listen to this episode, they almost all talk about Chris describing the sound at Sheffield Wednesday when he received the ball on the wing. Listen, you'll hear it. We're now, Chris, going to podcast. The last time you and I were together, we shared a beer. Mm. in Kiev yeah it was just after the final of 2012 we'd seen Spain Italy wonderful game 4-0 but what was still echoing about in my mind that day was something that I think you share a, a, a passion for because the night before the final I'd been out with the son of Ozzy Federico and Federico and Adam our cameraman and I had been to a Queen concert live in the streets of Kiev and we found this karaoke bar karaoke bar where it's a restaurant you sit down you have your meal you get called up you sing and if you're doing well the waitresses will join in with you and the lads will tell you that if there's anything more passionate about than football it's karaoke and singing (laughs) if we fixed up in Tokyo or back in Kiev what would be your all-time top three choices of songs to perform if I handed you the microphone and said you're on well, when I do karaoke, which basically when you've said when you've had a beer, that's when you tend to want to do a karaoke. Usually. Yeah, without the, without the beer, I don't think, I don't do a karaoke, to be honest. When I was growing up, I was a big jam fan. Yeah. So I followed the jam around a lot. So I'd have to put one of their songs in that. Out all the songs, probably, I'd have a bash it. It would probably be something like Eating Rifles or Going Underground or Strange Town. Uh, we some classic jam, jam song. Um the one I've done probably the most, if I was honest, that people say when you get up to karaoke, you've got to do to a song. It's either Mr. Brightside, oh. which I absolutely kill. And um, <laughs> I've got to say the other one I do, I used to do more of, was Rebel Yell by Billy Idol. I don't know why I ever picked that song. I, Billy Idol, I like some of his stuff, don't get us wrong, but I got up one day and sang it and somebody went, eh, that sounded good. And I thought, are they taking the Michael or is, is it? And, and I thought, right. So I took it on board. So every time I sung a karaoke, they used to say, what are you going to sing? And I used to think, Rebel Yell. And I must kill it as well. But um, that's yeah, one probably the three songs. I'd, if I had to name the three to get up, that would probably be the three. You, you wake up after a Rebel Yell night with a very sore throat the next morning. You do, but um, it's just, I don't know. I don't know why I picked that song originally and why I ended up doing it. But I would probably say all the karaoke's I've done all my life, I would say Rebel Yell, probably the most I've done it. 
I grew up fascinated by the BBC television centre and the politics and the backbiting of how Top of the Pops was run. What is Top of the Pops like? The, 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 the build-up, the bar, the commissioners, the, the, the director was a, a real Hitler, wasn't he, about like stand there, yeah. do this, shut up. Yeah, we, we uh, I mean, Glenn went on in 87 and it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. Yeah. And that even talks about the penalty miss, Germany, finals, FA Cups, Champions yeah. League final, Marseille. Any type of football I've played can't compare to Top of the Pops. On the day, I missed the dress rehearsal because I was doing an interview somewhere else in London. Then I arrived, I had one rehearsal, and then basically that was it, went on. I always remember that, I remember it really well. And my Gary Davis was the guy introducing it. He was stood on some scaffolding above her, high up, and the cameras looked at us, then it was zoomed to him. And he went, introducing now at number 11, two guys who are known in the football, or cut it in the music business, it could be the new Wham! <laughs> We just looked at him if they think, are you real or what? Anyway, then we did it, and then at the finish, the Sunday papers, that was a Thursday, the Sunday papers had a field day called with a new spam, everything they wanted. But to us, it was a nerve-wracking, and I always remember I was on Terence Trent Derby, oh, yeah. five-star. They were all very complimentary, come up junior, I was on with Kim Whale at the duet they did, and uh, they all come up and said, listen, hey, good on you, it sounds all right, and, you know, fair play, it's good, you know, wish you well. Uh, we were like, are they taking the mic a lot? Are they being serious? No, we're fine, you know. Anyway, and the only bloke we basically hammered with, who was on that night, was um, Smith Morrissey. Oh, did he? He's like, he was like, rubbish shouldn't be here. He's a footballer. Cheers, mate. Yeah, we were like, well, yeah, fair enough. Well, I don't understand where he's coming from. <laughs> you know, everybody was going, all right, how are you? He was like, Phew. so, you know, um, we were never going to be every cup of tea. I mean, how it all happened, that was just chance of... Sitting there, having a few beers, getting up like a carry. It was a group who got up, Wayne Glenn up, sang at this presentation night. And my mate said, oh, it sounded all right, that. I've got a bloke in the music business. Next thing, we're in a house. Next, we're in a studio. Next thing, it's it's cut. But it's singing is, is fantastic. The actual act of singing is, oh, makes you happy, doesn't it? Gives yeah, you endorphins. Yeah. Well, I've been in music. Glenn likes his music. I know Glenn like the, you know, big fan of the Eagles. and mm-hmm. I would tell it, I like the Eagles, but they want my cup of tea as no. such. You know, I, I can listen to the Eagles, I was wrong, but... Um, he liked his music, I liked his music, and, uh, and it was one of them, as it started prog- progressing down the lane, we thought, I thought, you know what, I'm not bothered if people take the mic out, I just thought, exactly. I, love, I love music, and whether it's a flop, whether it's a hit, whether, whatever it is, it's a chance when you get older, you look back and think, I could have I made a, a single or a whatever it was, uh, we could have done that, and I thought, you know what, it's worth doing, and it, people still talk about it today, right, it was 1987 that, and people still talk. Wherever I go in the country, someone will shout some question, and nine times out of ten, the question is, you're not singing Diamond Lights today, are you? 1987, that people still remember that record, which is unbelievable when I look back. You had another big hit, World in Motion. Mm. But they, why weren't you in the video? We weren't back no, no, I was in it. France. So they wouldn't let you come to film it? No. What happened with that was, they, I came from France, and we were in the hotel at Burnham Beaches, and... They came in and they said, we're doing a World Cup song. And everybody went, oh, not another one. That type of thing. And then they said, um, we're looking for some volunteers. New Order's doing it. So me, Gaza, Peter Beardsley, Steve McManus, John Barnes. I think it was five work. Went, yeah, we'll come. So it wasn't far where they were cutting it. And we got in the car and we, we drove down to this, it was like a house with a studio in it. And uh, Lars was there. He was uh, Keith Allen, the actor. And he was brilliant. He was like there and he got to go and got a few beers. And all we had to basically shout was England, 
Barnsley obviously did the rap bit, but all, all, all I wanted us for was just to keep going, England. So we thought, yeah, well, it's a day out. Get away from the hotel. A few beers. We had, we had a great laugh, great, don't it? To be fair, when you drove away and we went back, we thought nothing of it. We thought, yeah, it was a good day, that. And obviously, listen, depending how the team do, depending how the record did. And because we started going through the tournament, all of a sudden people think quarterfinals, mm. semifinals. The song got played more. People were buying it more. The video, it was basically, was an after event, which what they said was, we're going to use footage of England playing. But the actual video of, you know, the jumping around bit, I wasn't there. And all they said was, look, you know, see how it goes. And I always remember when we got back from the World Cup and I went, I had no year Marseille. And when I came home, about a year later, more, whatever, I, was, I think it was my first season here. It's Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. And then I got a knock on the door and bloke gave us this big parcel. And I thought, what's that? He went, I don't know, delivery thing. So I opened it up and it was a, a gold disc. <laughs> because you sing on it, you're entitled to the gold disc. Even though you're only showing England, you got a gold disc. So you thought... I didn't get my diamond lace, but at least I got one eventually for, um, for with the England song. Now, if your if your chip, if your lob against Bodo mm. Elgner had gone in, you'd have been able to go back to Marseille and take the, the Mickey out of yeah. the Kaiser. When you went back to Marseille, and you found that the bugger who'd knocked you out of the semi-final of the World Cup was the, no, was France a bit France a bit mean, but he was a top guy. After the semis, even on the pitch, you know, he didn't go celebrating with the German. He came around all nice. and, and he was like, look, Fast. you know. Listen, he was good as he won it. He knew it was, there was nothing between them. Yeah. And we basically he knew whoever won that would win it. Yeah. And that was the game. That was the final, really, because you, you basically knew. We watched Argentina. Yeah, they had some talented players, but they were more of a clogging side, more of a physical side, not Argentina, which we'd picture. So we thought, yeah, it would be a grain, but you'd fancy your chances against them. We knew Germany, when we watched it at home, and going on, Germany were the best team we'd saw. But they were also complimentary of us. And the, listen, Germany, England will always be a good game. After the game, France, and Matthias plays out. They were fantastic. No one else, we would have ran off to the crowds and gone mad and like, bleh, you know, they were, the German squad were brilliant. Class, eh? Yeah, they were very good. And, and it was funny, when I got back, uh, I had a few weeks in Newcastle, a couple of weeks, and I obviously went back to Marseille to start the pre-season. I was a bit behind because of the tournament. And uh, walked in the change room, he'd been appointed <laughs> manager of Marseille. So when I got back, I read it, and obviously I knew, I thought, oh, God. Anyway, walked in the change room, and uh, he turned around, and he went, ah, oh, Chris. I went, uh, hello, Franz. He went, my favourite English footballer. <laughs> and that's why he, he just said that. Nice. Like that. And I just thought, yeah, yeah, nice. you know, brilliant. And uh, But he was a really nice guy. He let you know about the football, if you weren't doing it, whether whoever you were, he'd, uh, if you weren't doing enough or doing what he wanted, then he'd hit you with it. Uh, but... As a guy, fantastic. Your, your talent was really clear throughout your school years, and then it sort of, you know, it didn't happen because Coventry thought mm. maybe you were, I don't know, too small or whatever. It was just, you know, because you're height now, it's hard to understand. But a guy I want to ask you about because he's very proud of, of your development is Arthur Cox. Mm. And, and what fascinates me is that, you know, he says he bullied you. Did. Why did he bully you? And could somebody do that these days? He bullied us because he could see the talent I had. And he used to think I was... He thought I probably had an attitude problem. I, I didn't have an attitude problem. I was shy, very shy. And he thought I had an attitude problem because it looked like I wasn't interested because I never spoke. I never. So he must have thought, he's not bothered. And it was just shyness, really. And Arthur, I think Arthur got the wrong end of where he'd come in. Obviously, he took over from Bill McGarry. And you know, the team was struggling and... He looked at the reserves and I was just starting out and I was on fire on the reserves. I 
pre-season I found hard because it was the first pre-season I've ever done where you just thought, wow. I always said pre-season was ridiculous. The way they ran you, more Farrow wouldn't do as many miles as what we did. And it was when I went to France, it opened my eyes up about pre-seasons. But this was just like slog. You know, and I found it hard. I was still developing. I was skinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew working in the fact that uh, from 16 to 18, I grew to, to me hate, but I was like a rake. And he must have looked at this kid and thought, doesn't say anything, gets on with it, but lacks a bit of confidence. But to him, it was, maybe he thought, he's not that bothered. What did he do? Everything was basically on me case. Whatever I did, I couldn't do anything right. So it was never a pat on the back. It was always, could do more. Always could do more. And for two and a half years, it was, this was basically the life of... I used to hide in the training ground. I used to come in and I used to sneak in the change rooms. I never used to go through because he'd pick on us for anything. Mm-hmm. So it was like basically at school, somebody grabbing you every day and taking your pocket money off you. Mm. He'd find us for the slightest things. Why didn't that break you? Because I, 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 I believed I had the ability. And by the way, there was a lot of times I spoke to like some of the older players and I used to say, I've had enough of him. Mm. I'm, I don't know whether I put a, a transfer request. I'm thinking, you know, I, I just, I'm sick of it. And uh, it went, you know, and then Keegan, Kevin Keegan came, you know, and then we got promoted. It was basically that year we got promoted. Uh, it, was, it was like two and a half years into it of playing. Where he actually caught us one day and he went, pennies dropped. But then after that was sort of a, but I, I don't want you to take your foot off the gas. Mm. You know, that type of thing. But he says, the pennies dropped, you're consistent now. Which yeah. for him, that, that must have been a big thing for him yeah. to say. Yeah. You know, it was like, what, you're actually praising us. It took mm. two and a half years to get a pat on the back. And he just said, you've got the consistency, you know, you've got, what he might have thought was attitude of, doesn't matter if it happens. Doesn't matter. It it did matter to us, it, but maybe it's my body language and the way I was. Maybe it's that he thought I wasn't as interested or as um, focused or the passion and desire what you need to go and succeed in football. I did have it. It was just I was shy. But he obviously took it the other way. You've used a phrase body language, um, which I know you meant it in a different way, but it's part of the reason that we're all here today, talking to you. In that I warned you before this chat, mm. I'd say things that would embarrass you. Mm. But these are sincere. I, I think that in many ways you were England's Zidane. I compare your balance and your vision and your ability with the ball and what you did with the ball, but what you could do to other people around you, which, which was pretty special. But another thing that annoys me is when I read people writing about you and it was enigmatic or languid, which wasn't true. I think mm. you were very, very fast with the ball, mm. which is a rare trick. And you reminded me of Michael Loudrop yeah, and yeah. his ability to go past people at a fair physique too. Mm. Like, but are you able to define how you do the things you do with, not with the ball, but dropping the shoulder or showing people one way and going the other or all the various things that made you an elite footballer on the world level? Did it just happened because your brain gave you messages to your body or did you think about it or did it change from when you were skinny to when you were you know physically intimidating no uh, when I was started playing kicking the ball around when I was four five three four five six my dad was a massive football uh, loved it he loved football he'd do his work but football was his passion uh, I told my brothers so I was out on the field at three four playing but at five six I was um Doing the body swerve then. I remember when I was six, seven, eight, I remember doing that trick. I, you know, people always say to me about, yeah, I'm a great believer in practising with the ball, getting the feel of a ball, passing the ball. But you can't go into training every day and say, right, lads, it's what we're doing now, we're going to do body swerves, step overs, Cruyff turns, 
I've seen a lot of players on training grounds walk, do a step over, and I'll go do that on a Saturday. It looks all right, that. You might work. No, I'm not doing that. Why? Well, I might trot on the ball or I might do it wrong. And? Well, if you do it right. No, I'm not doing it. To me, it was a natural thing to go and do. That's how I played. And the great thing I had growing up was, my dad obviously was a big influence because he'd be always in the ear. But I never had a manager, whether it be a school teacher, whether it be under junior teams. Even when I went to clubs, really, I never really had a guy who pulled me to one side and went, stop dribbling, mm. stop doing it. All he used to say was, give him the ball, give him the ball and let him get on with it. And yes, some days it frustrates because it doesn't happen. For whatever reason, the kids are that good, or you read you, or you, you just, it's just not there. But the art of, of beating people is how close you get to the man. You know, I, I watch now on the TV and I see players running and they're getting within five yards of the fullback or the centre half or the midfield player, whoever they're playing against, and they start doing step overs and they start doing this. Hey, that foot over the ball, over the ball, but the guy's five yards away. You're never going to beat a guy five yards away. The object of beating a guy is getting as close as you can basically to you within a yard, because that is when basically you're going to go one way or the other or he's going to nick the ball off you. You can't beat a guy from five yards. He's got to be a very bad defender if you beat a guy from five yards away, but away. So to me, you now somebody says, well, how far do you run the ball to the guy? I went, you don't, it's just not, it happens. And I've always believed that when, you, when you're a footballer, you're born with your talent you've got. Now it's how you put together, will you feel mentally, physically, will you not be good enough that way? Listen, you, you can go and watch a Sunday morning game, you'll see a kid with a trick, but you just think mentally all, the whole package, not good enough to step up ladders. But that level, he's a very good player. But you're born with it. I, I was Because he went to me, could you show us how to do a body sweep? And I went, I can show you, but you can't do it in the games because people don't sell a body sweep enough. You've got to sell it as if... I always just say, but imagine you are going to go that way. And I used to look at the defender's point of view and I'd say, if I'm going that way, he thinks I'm going that way, obviously. And it's just that last second where you think, I'm not, mate. You think I am. <laughs> so you've got to really exaggerate it as if to think the ball is getting left behind in a way because I'm taking it off. I'm taking off from my right foot. I'm off. And it's just that last second where you're off. He think what he is. He's going. He goes. And then you take it with your left foot, which I do. Obviously, if you're right foot, you do it either way. And that's how you beat the guy. But if I run up to the guy, I've seen it work down his wrong from five yards. But the time when it works and when it really works is you've got to convince that man it's a confidence trick go that way it's yeah. a con, it's oh, a con yeah. artist isn't it it's like a step over you know it looks like you're taking the ball with you, and you don't you just roll your foot over it but the guy thinks you're kicking the ball so he goes that way and then you change direction take the ball in the foot you know anybody can do this but the art is when to do it and it's that split second you know when you watch Lionel Messi when you watch Cristiano Ronaldo when he's, best, when he's on the you know when he's dribbling mm. All these players that we want to talk about, who you'll mention, you know, your Ronaldinho's over the years, and all these players, and Tommy Hutchinson's or John Robertson's, they used to drag the ball. They'd have the ball right up the people. You used to torment the, the full-back, you know, because there's always a play, and you back off, back off, back off, back off. So you used to think, he never goes past us, but you think, I don't need to go past you, because you just back off till I get to an area where I can cross it, or pass it. So you're doing me a favour, really. Then you'll get the ones who think, what I'll do is I'll back, 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 then I'll dive in. And again, that's timing to see him coming, that movement, that split second. When you see him come to tackle you, you move the ball and he's lying on his backside now, oh, he's stuck and you're away. You know, and then it's like, show him this way, show him that way.
And I always tell a story where I remember playing against Maldini at Wembley for England, and I think it was about 80, 80, 80 I think he was 20, 19, 21. And I was raving about this kid. And don't get us wrong, he, what a player he was. Mm. Anyway, I played, and it was in a midweek game friendly for England against Italy, and I tortured him. I played right, and I always remember the game. I come off and I thought, that, you know, that's how you play as a winger type thing. And I was like, the Italians were like, can't believe it. <laughs> Never seen anybody do that. And the press, man, you know, and then when I, you know, years on, I've always said, every Italian player I met, Mancini was manager of Man City, and I went to the tunnel and I was Mijan. And they always used to say the same thing, the Ali the lot, the only man to embarrass Maldini. <laughs> and I used to think, is that what I remembered for in Italy, just for that? Is that it? And anyway, years ago, and um, I was playing Sunday morning football in Sheffield and uh, playing against a young fullback, pub football. And this young kid bought every trick, every trick. And I had this kid spinning round. And I was 42, 43. The centre-half shouting across, totally before the game. He always does the same thing. So and then I'm going to centre-half. Well, you come out here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then he's saying, if I come out there, I'll put you across the touchline yeah, and all that. Yeah, I went, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before, you know. Anyway, this young kid's like, oh, I'm sick of this. Final whistle going, this kid, centre-half's on his left-backs, on his case all the time. So as the game finishes, I walk off and I go, listen, mate, don't worry about that. And he went, oh. I went, Maldini fell for the same thing. <laughs> and the kid went, <laughs> he sort of grew in hate. Yeah, and he went, yeah. and he went to send off it. Maldini fell out. <laughs> I always used to say to Pino, I said, don't worry, Maldini fell for the same trick, mate. I, you've, you've encapsulated two things there, the beauty of the sport and the reason we're all here, but also the fact you're a good man because... If you've got a little kid tied up and not that, like, it's easy to humiliate him and laugh at him, but you've made, oh, him, yeah. you've made, him, you've made him feel good. Also, we, we talked in the journey down about how often we meet great athletes, great sportsmen, women who, who can't describe what they do, but you can, and you obviously thought about it. And you've made me think about Shane Warne bowling somebody yeah. and how they get into the batsman's head. Yeah. And you were doing the same one on one. It's cat and mouse. It's cat and mouse. Listen, you know, when I first started playing football, I knew, I knew, and I used to say to the ref from the kickoff, I'd say, ref, if I was playing on the wing or I was playing something, whatever I was playing, I'd say to the ref, I'd say, ref, by the way, I'm just going to warn you now. That left back's going to put me in the stand in the first 10 minutes of this game. So I'm just marking your card. So I need a little bit of help here. You know what you're on about? And I went, you watch within the first 10 minutes of this game, he will boot me 10 yards in my own half or around the halfway line. That manager will have told him. How can you say that? And I went, well, watch. 10 minutes, wallop. I got to learn, because I played Sunday morning football at 13, 14, I was playing pub football then. I learned how to ride tackles. You can imagine I was only like, at 14, I was like five foot three, five foot two, and I'm playing against men on a Sunday morning. I just had the same tricks as I had when I played against whoever. I had the same tricks at 13, and I did have when I was 30. So all of a sudden, I'm beating a bloke who's probably had 10 pints the night before, and he's getting embarrassed by a 13-year-old kid. So I knew, and the lads used to say it was other blokes, you know what you're doing, you're taking the mail out that full back and he's going to boot you at some stage because he's sick of you. So I used to think, right, well, if it, but I learned through playing like that levels how to ride tackles. Could see it coming. Listen, you used to get caught now and again, mm. but you could ride most of the tackles. Explain ride. Basically, you know that there's an opportunity when it's, the ones that prefer was when it's on its way to you, mm-hmm. that is their chance to think it's going to be close. If he sprints to the ball and I'm going to receive it, that's their time to lunge in and hit you. So a full sliding tackle. Or, or just, yeah, just swing as if to think, I'm going to get the ball, but I realistically, I'm going to take you out as well. 
And that was the ball. So when you got the ambulance ball coming across with a blue light flashing on it, you should think, here we go. You'd see the guy coming, and I should think, right, so all I'm going to do is nick it around the corner and jump. So as he came in, you'd just nick it, ride the tackle, obviously, and you'd go over with it, and you'd land on the ground. And you'd just sit on the ground, and you'd go to the ref. <laughs> and then he'd go, they always give him a warning first. Yeah. So I'd say, why did you give him a warning? <laughs> and he used to say, what do you mean? I said, why did you give him a warning? So what you're saying to him is, have another go at it. You've got a free one. Yeah. There's your free tackle. You've got another one. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew. Then I thought, right. Well, I used to then think, well, if I do it again, I'm on a yellow. Now, if, to me, if I got him on a yellow, he was then He was finished. The game was over. Because he didn't touch me again. Because the next time it was red. So once you got him on a yellow, you thought, right, here we go. He cannot make just another tackle like that again. Nowhere near one like that. He can't pull you back if you go on the outside or whatever. He, he can't take you out the game anymore. So he's got to play as a fullback now against you. It's like he can't touch you anymore. So that was when he used to think, We're on. this is where I... In my mind, it was me via the left-back, he's booked, game over for him. And a lot of clubs would sub him or change the right-back yeah. to the left-back. So, you know, that was it. But when you're grown up, I knew that all the tackles coming in, I learned to raid them, and it was all part of growing up. So when I got the pro level, obviously it's quicker, they're a bit more cuter at how they do it you know, but you know the same thing was going to happen. Mm. So it was just a matter of riding it. Okay, you've talked about two types of bravery there because you talked about knowing that something physical's coming and, you know, you, you either put up with that or you don't. But you've also talked about risk. Football is very conservative. A lot of footballers are scared of being humiliated. We talked before we put the mic on about the dressing room at Marseille, the Frenchman mm. actually taking three months to own up they could speak English because they were worried that, the, you said, yeah. they were worried that their teammates would take the piss out of them. Now, these are grown men venerated around the world, earning millions of euros and, and brilliantly skilled at something. Yeah. Yet they're scared of being exposed for speaking English to you. And they're, or they're scared of trying a trick on a Saturday. They're scared yeah. about, what if it doesn't come off? Yeah. That's a different kind of bravery. That in life, mm-hmm. you, when you, you seem to have innately got, like, I don't mind. I want to be live with style or live with humour or mm-hmm. take a risk of... A shot or a chip or a, or a nutmeg won't come off, but you, you don't care about that. No, I think football for me was an entertainment business. I think you pay money to be entertained. Listen, if you go to a stadium and there's 36,000 there, or there's 56,000, or there's 80,000 there, listen, if you're a, a, an artist, a singer in a, a group, you must think this is, what, this is what you play for. You know, when they go at that stage and the, the stadium's full and they start belting their songs out and the crowd's going mad, they must think this is as good as it gets. So to me, I was always brought up that it's, a, it's an entertainment business, you know, and people want to be... I used to love it when, even with Hillsborough when I was at Wednesday, and I would be standing on the right south stand where the tunnel is, and the ball used to get transferred across to John Sheridan, pings one across to us. Our new round is, as the ball was coming, I used to think, well, he's not going to full-back on get there, he's too far away. I would bring the ball down, bring it down, and then I'm going to think, right, this is it, I'm coming for you. As soon as the ball came to my chest, I turned out the corner of my eye, I could see everybody in the stand go, <laughs> and you could hear the seats go, flap, flap, flap. <laughs> and I used to think, that's what I come for. I used to think, that's what I come for. Now, I'd run at the full-back. Listen, I might cock it up. I might have fell off the ball. I might have run it out of play. He might, he might take it off us. But I just thought, you know, I'll go past him, you know, and he could hear a, you know, when is it Marseille? You know, the velodrome, fantastic, the old stadium, you know, the old bicycle track. Atmosphere was fantastic. It was, it was all round the ground at Marseille. It's not just about an end where 
British grounds always had a cockpit. Yeah. And the rest of it was all people sat like that way in a way. The club and whatever. In Marseille was just the whole ground was fanatical. Yankees and the thingies and the ultras. And it was just non-stop. So when you obviously got people on toast and you were doing things to people and, you know, it, it, and literally it's here. It, you can understand why people wanted to kick it, isn't it? Because I did embarrass a lot of people. And when I look back, I used to say to them, I'm not embarrassing you. I've got nothing. I don't even know you. Mm. I'm doing my job. At the end of the day, I wasn't going up there and being a Harlem Globetrotter and just doing it because it was a testimonial games or benefiting it. There was points at stake. There was money at stake. There was everything at stake. So the team would say, they didn't ever see anything. I just looked at them and they used to thought, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. But they used to thought, because there's something at the end of it, there's a cross, a shot. Something's going to happen or I'll roll somebody in. That's why they gave the ball. And yes, in the mean state of before you did that, you might have went past two people or embarrassed the one guy to you're saying you nutmegged them or you did something to them where the crowd all went. Well, so you just think, well, you're getting the whole package here. I was two different people, mate. On the field, I had more con- as much confidence as anybody, really. I-, I believed I could do things with the football and it was like a stage. But when I got off the field, I was reserved. So people used to see this character on the field of smile and joke and, yeah, all the daft things I did, you know, which was amusing. And they saw this guy on the field who smiled at the cameras and... Uh, as the game was going on and you know I remember doing game at Nancy I think the game was going on I was signing autographs on the Twitter <laughs> and it, you know but to the French it was like wow we've never seen a guy we've never had a guy like this before I was just doing daft things but I was just enjoying myself and when I got off the field people would thought I was the same guy on the field who basically was a, a bit of a, a joke or a bit of this wanted to do this I wasn't I liked to come off and I didn't like being recognised off the field I'm not one of them who parades around, you know, um, I like to come over, I shut the door. That's it. Nobody sees us, nobody knows us. Yeah, I go in the village, I've got a local, I've got some good friends and all that. But, I'm, you know, people say, oh, we're going downtown Saturday. I'm not going down. You know, and it's not because you, you think I'm, I'm above that or I don't want... I get embarrassed a bit by recognition. And I always have. I've not, I've not really enjoyed that side of it. I love the football side of it when you're on the field because it's freedom and you, you're doing your job. Mm-hmm. So when the job's finished, you become who you want to be, who you are, actually who you are. And I, I do nothing like that off the field. You know, I just talk football. Everybody wants to talk football because that's football. But, um, you know, I don't do anything uh, off the field. And people may actually, a lot of people say, he's quite reserved, quite shy, don't see a lot of him. And, but the field was my stage. We, we've found out that a lot of the people who share our love of football, you know, are much, much younger than me. Mm. And therefore they haven't seen all the things that I'm, I'm going to talk about. But... As well as Magic Chris, you were known as Magic Chris in France. You did some of the things you've been talking about. I didn't know about signing autographs during a game. But you would make Bugs Bunny ears. Yeah. You, were, you were always full of wit and sparkle. It was the image of somebody enjoying their... For example, I remember the first time I ever saw you play that you really struck me. You were playing on... It looked like the Somme at Fratton Park, up front with Keegan oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think you each scored. And you, you scored from... From a yeah. ridiculous yeah, angle, yeah. and I went, Whoa, there's something I'm going to watch. But when you moved abroad, there wasn't a lot of foreign football on television no. then, which is why when Gazzetta came on, everybody fell in love with Italian football. But we were showing clips on either Grandstand yeah. or World yeah, Sport, whatever yeah. it was. And the one that everybody loved was when you'd been at Marseille, not that long, and you're probably your biggest rivals were Bordeaux, but Paris Saint Germain is a big rival. And you, for anybody who hasn't seen it, Chris takes the ball, there's a nice ball over the top, you take it in your chest, twirl the goalkeeper around, and then back heel the ball into yeah. the goal. 
you, you and Gaza share wit and humour and enjoyment of life. And I think there's a correlation between that and, and little madcap moments and what you, what you do with the ball. You treat wit and jokes and funny things with the camera the same way as you treat the ball. Mm. It's like, oh, i tell you what I could do now. Yeah. What, what, I mean, that moment, what was in your head? Can you remember the, the, what was in your head when you, when you decided to backheel it? I remember we were in a hotel and I'd been struggling form-wise. Uh, the heat had got us out. I'd missed pre-season with Tottenham. Um, I went basically to Marseille on a Wednesday. The first game was on a Saturday. So I'd had three days training. I had nanny pre-season. They'd had a month or three weeks, sorry, Marseille. I was well behind. It was boiling. We went to Lyon on the Friday, flew up. Saturday, I thought, well, I was sitting and stand and watch the game. Uh, Bernard Tappy said, you're sub. And I says, I'm not fit. You know, I need some pre-season. They tried to run us that in three days in the heat, which absolutely killed us. I didn't feel great. Uh, half-time was 4-0. Half-time, they put us on. I actually ended up wearing the captain's armband for the last 50 minutes because Papa and pulled his hamstring yeah. and they put the armband around me and I couldn't speak a word of French and I had a clue about anything. Anyway, Mick McCarthy was playing for uh, Leon. When Papa used to wear his wife's air hostess handkerchief thing. Oh, yeah, neckerchief. Neckerchief, and uh, that was his armband. <laughs> so he took it off and it was about this long, you know, it was a good day, massive thing. Papa went, yeah, put that on. So um, I went, what can I do with that? And Mick McCarthy went, I'll wrap it round your neck. So uh, I went, yeah. Anyway, somebody tied the, the band on and I ended up finishing. But, you know, I did all right in that game. It was adrenaline. Then the next game I was sub, came on, did okay. But I was struggling in form. I, I was struggling with fitness. And I just said, give us, give us two, three months to settle in, get fit, and you'll see. Anyway, that week we played Paris Saint-Germain. It was a few games into the season. On the Monday, I moved out of the hotel. you got to think, I had a daughter, one. I had one car. So I used to go to training. We're training twice a day then. Mrs. was stuck in the hotel all day. It was boiling hot. So it was hard because, you know, communication-wise and things to do. And So I was coming home from training and I was, you know, it was really hard slog. I'm not, you know, and maybe I see, oh, shut up, you're in the south of France. And it's, listen, life's People life. don't understand the, you know, the massive difference that that level of fitness yeah. will take away from you or give you, yeah. irrespective of your ability. Life's life. Anyway, that week, the house would look at to rent an ex was actually it was supposed to be finished two months earlier finished and they said you can move in so we moved in on the Monday all of a sudden I felt a foot taller I said right and I remember shutting the door we got in we had the furniture in, delivered whatever we had and got in and I said to Mrs. I remember shutting the door and I said right it starts now with Marseille career if it doesn't work can't do anything about it but from the day it starts never mind what the previous six games or eight games would have been it starts now and on the Friday we're playing Paris on the TV. A Friday night live game and Palace and Marseille detested you. It's like, you know, because Marseille thinks should be capital. And blah, blah. Anyway, all week to build up this, that and the other. So I thought, right, this is it. I feel great. Um, fitness was there. In my own house. Shut the door away from everybody. And we went um, in the game. The ball came, I beat the offside trap. And um, is that chest that the goalkeeper who played many years, I think, with France, top goalkeeper. Went to pick it up, and I just got my toe there before him. And as I lifted it over his head, as it came down, I've got at time. I thought I'm offside, I'm not. But you just think putting the net. You know, if they put the flag up, then you think, well, it wasn't meant to be. And as it dropped, I don't know why it went through my head about back heel on it. I just as I turned, as I flicked, I sort of lost a bit of balance. And as I watched the ball come down, I was at an angle really, where yeah, I could have side footed it, but I just don't know. I was at the angle, and I just thought, oh, anyway, I did it, and it it went in. And then from there, that's where my Marseille career went. 
took off. And that's where I had the confidence, the belief to do things with the football. You know, from there, it just that's where it rocketed. But that goal, you know, was shown and shown for weeks and weeks in France. After every program showed that goal for weeks and weeks, then that was it. And my confidence was all there. My fitness was there. And then, you know, that week I said to the missus, "This is where it starts. This is what Marcel say the real me. And if it doesn't work out, it'll not be a lack of trying, a lack of whatever. It'll be wasn't meant to be." Going to give you your life back now. You've been exceptional to speak to. You've been exceptionally generous. I'm going to ask you, which I've only done once before, whether sometime in the long distant future we can come back and do the rest of this because we missed a lot of Spurs. Mm-hmm. We missed a lot of Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah. We missed Tommy Burns not being able to persuade you to move to Glasgow. That's right. We, what Neil calls the glory years at Brockville with Falkirk. We've missed a lot of a life well spent. You're a football genius. I still contend England's Zidane. It's been a privilege and a pleasure, sure. even beyond what we expected. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a social, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.